then. And now I have become a meme. Welcome, listeners, to Mars on Life. I am one of your co-hosts, Ryan Mancini, and I'm joined with me by my dear friend, Andrew Martinez. Andrew, what's going on? <laughs> Hello there. That caught me <laughs> off guard. I just, I, I just see his face instantly when you say that. Um, yes, thank you. Welcome. Welcome back. And may the fourth be with you. And to you as well. I'll just briefly say it, folks. Yes, I am cautiously optimistic about the Obi-Wan show. Yes, I've seen both trailers. Uh, I'm sure Sebastian would be busting my hump right about now, but you know what? You take what you can get and you run with it. Uh, That being said, the show isn't out, so I can't say anything much further other than it it looks promising. Anyway, um, I just got back from a trip. Yeah. First time in two what, years. What nice timing. I mean, gosh, if, if America wasn't crazy enough, what a time to get away from the noise. What a time to just go relax. We're all very jealous of you. But yes, <laughs> welcome back. Uh, I went to a sort of a typical spot that my family likes to go to. Uh, and maybe it's, I don't know, I, we, we, we've been going here even before it became sort of a popular destination among all the other crazy people in Santa Clarita, um, San Jose del Cabo. And, you know, my first, my parents went by themselves for a week and then my sister and I joined them. Uh, so I was Ted Cruz in this equation. It was interesting. I mean, the day that we left, my sister and I left, first off, we got out, we got out really early, like four in the morning um, so that was fun. So I got maybe like an hour and a half of sleep due to both emptying our dishwasher, which I was late to do, and editing two episodes, which I was also late to do. So it was it was kind of a busy night. And then we get to LAX and the indoor mask rule for public transportation had gone back to you need to be wearing your masks. And you could tell there were plenty of people in the airport that were not all too thrilled by that. And even once we got on the plane, it didn't help that, A, once you got on the plane, you didn't need to wear a mask. And B, the stewardesses were actually encouraging people to take their masks off. Well, that's interesting. That's yeah. a plot twist. I, I looked over at my sister like, what? wait a minute. I thought the, the stewardesses were our friends. Um <laughs> Everything was pretty smooth. I mean, my sister and I kind of know the layout of the Cabo airport pretty well. The same could not be said when we left, just because clearly a lot of the airport had changed in the last couple of years. And yeah, you know, we got to the hotel, met up with my folks, or our folks, and the rest of the trip was pretty smooth. We were careful. We wore our masks when we had to. I don't tan. I burn. So I did burn a little bit the first day, but that's because we... We had to wait a while for our lunch. And I know it's going to be weird saying this just because it's like, yeah, I'm the I'm the white guy tourist showing up. But, you know, the same could be said literally about any country around the world. And I'm sure I'm going to be saying this in a month's time when I go to Europe. Despite the fact that it looked like business was booming, you could definitely tell that COVID and the global economic whatever you want to call it depression really hit cabo as well as it hit the united states 
I hadn't even thought about that because you think, uh, and obviously, you know, we laugh at Ted Cruz escaping, but <laughs> I was thinking that it was an escape for people during the pandemic, but it just mm-hmm. makes sense. Last summer, I knew several people that went to Cabo, and this was right around the time that, I believe it was right around the time that Omicron was really, no, uh, Delta was really kicking into high gear in terms of being all over the place. And at the time, we had thought of going, and we, but we were all terrified. We were all like, eh, it, Cabo looks too much like a hot zone right now. Let's, it's better to be safe rather than sorry. And none of us were boosted yet. Like, boosters weren't even really an option when we originally thought of going last summer. Some of the staffs at various restaurants and even at, you know, parts of the hotel were, you could tell that they had not that long ago hired people and maybe they didn't get a lot of training. Sometimes trying to translate things from Spanish and English was a little bit more difficult, which again, I I, I took it all in, in an understanding way because it's like, yeah, you guys have been hit hard by COVID. I, I, I get it. It's everything's been completely pantsed by this pandemic and all the economic repercussions due to it. That said, margaritas were a little watered down um but but you know honestly it was a great trip i am glad to have taken it uh like i said people were safe i took my first covid test ever really not bad yeah this was my first because you that's just it you have to have a negative test to leave the country to leave mexico uh, swab pcr whatever they call it you never did it never but in Cabo, it was one of those things where it was I kept it on pretty much any time I knew I was going to be directly near anybody else. And whether that was on like a walkway or, you know, walking around the hotel, even even if nobody walked by me, but there was like nobody in sight, I kept my mask on. And I mean, the people working at the hotel were very respectful about masking and and pretty much always had their masks on uh, most of the time properly. So uh, if anything, it was just worrying about all the sneezing, coughing, dirty Americans near us. Yeah, you, you can go crazy thinking about, well, I didn't know. I guess what I don't know is like if you was uh, required to have a booster for going, it gets really messy and like I feel yeah. it hurts my head thinking about it. But <laughs> I, I, I just can't believe you hadn't taken a test. And like, that's not even good or bad. I guess it's more, it's a good indictment on you. Well, indictment. It's a good, <laughs> it's a good sign that you didn't have to, but that is mind blowing. You might be one of the last Americans. Okay, <laughs> I might be going far, but like uh, seriously, you might be one of the last Angelinos to like have never taken a test. Maybe it was the first COVID test my mom had gotten. I'm not so sure. I, I I'm pretty. I know my sister got test tested early on, um, because she had to move out of her apartment to move back in our home. And that was a whole fiasco that I was really overreacting to at that time. And I don't know if my dad ever got tested before his cold snafu wasn't so bad. There was a part of me that was like, damn, I'd I'd take that every day. I feel like I can breathe easier. Um, To which my sister was like, you know, there's a thing called sinus rinse, which I have, I have used, Um, (laughs) but not familiar as an asthma sufferer, not familiar. Like I said, it was a safe trip. It was a calming trip. I had plenty of reading material. 
Uh, finally read my first Charles Bukowski book. Oh, shout out to I perked up there. Which one? Uh, uh, Post Office. Oh, yeah. I just finished that one recently, too. How funny. What do you think of it? Honestly, it was everything I I expected reading him. He's somebody I've been very curious about ever since probably my either late junior, early senior year of college. In fact, I had a fraternity brother, uh, David Navarro, who was trying to get me into him because he heard I was curious. And the funny thing is he gave me the last book Bukowski wrote, Pulp. Mm-hmm. And I, and at that point in my life, like I, I, you know, philosophically and also just like how I read books, it was very different than now where I'm much more open to reading novels than I think I've ever been, at least since I was a kid. And at the time, I just I couldn't get into it. Out of all the books that I'm at least that I'm aware of, it's the most that's set in L.A. And there just seemed to be something fascinating and borderline existential in terms of what would it be to be a wannabe writer, a day in the life of a wannabe writer who ends up working at the post office. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I mean, I, would I recommend it? Yeah, totally. Does it mean I'm going to dig into his other stuff? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's a like appropriate it, response. Yeah. It, yeah, because it did it did kind of feel like I don't know where I can go from here that's going to be that different. And for listeners who, want, who are wondering who Andrew and I are talking about, uh, long story short, he's often considered one of L.A.'s greatest writers. That's kind of the best way I can describe him. Uh, like, I, I don't think I could do Ham on Rye, just because I know that there's some pretty dark stuff in that that I don't think I'm ready to read about. Yeah, post office gives you those hints. I mean, and uh, mm-hmm. I guess it's not a spoiler because it's early on in a, which is a very quick read, by the way, post office. But oh yeah, um, you know, there's uh, all, you know, uh, of course, uh, like rampant uh, substance abuse. So uh, if you ever want to know what he's like, um, you know, I don't, I don't know how true it is for if if you can really define all authors as you know their first book and you know, like having the full intro, but I think for Bukowski, post office is as clear as uh, understanding of the man as you get. I don't know. Hollywood, his book Hollywood is tempting just because there, there's something, it, it, it has more of a, a feeling of progression, whereas I feel like a lot of his other books, like women, I don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole for obvious reasons. Uh, and Factotum, I feel like would be a drawn out rehash of post office. Uh, but Hollywood, I don't know. There, there's something very more, very much more of like a down the road progression from where the end of post office was. Plus I wouldn't mind having another novel just called Hollywood. Cause I have one by Gore Vidal called Hollywood. And I, I, I kind of like the idea of having two books with that mundane title. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I, you know, I, a little bit other, a little bit of other reading as well, just to kind of let help the time go, help let the time go by. And um, other than that, I, I finally got to watch a couple of uh, films from Mexico that I've been dying to see for a long time. So thank you, Mexican Netflix. Um, <laughs> nice. Like uh, anything, uh, uh, some Americans would know. I uh, maybe uh, I have to pull the names up just so I'm 100% sure. The good thing is, is all I got to do is look up sort of the 
the, the guy that kind of connects the two of them, he's he's one of my favorite actors, and I think I've mentioned him on the show before, uh, and perhaps you know him. His name is Gael Garcia Bernal. Oh, yeah, of course, the treasure. Yeah, you know, and American audiences probably know him from, like, Coco. Uh, yeah, and also uh, one of my favorite shows, Mozart in the Jungle. Uh, oh, he's yeah. the... I'm still I still I'm still not over the fact that that show got canceled. Anyway, um, but the two movies were um, Rudo E. Kersey, which he did as like kind of a a reunion sort of film with um, Diego Luna because they both did Itumama Tambien, which yeah. is like one of the few coming of age stories I can go back to and be like, I bloody love this. And then his directorial debut, which I know I'm going to butcher the pronunciation ahead of time, uh, Chikua Rotes. That wasn't too bad, but uh, not familiar, <laughs> though. Um, so, gosh, yeah, again, ne- Mexican Netflix gems. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, when, when in Mexico. Exactly. How, how have you been doing? We spending all this time catching up with me. How, how have you been? Yeah, yeah, no sweat, no sweat. I mean, everything's been same old back here. Well, obviously, uh, you know, our nation is under turmoil, but in my household, things have been fine. I mean, um, you know, I have to clear the air. I may have COVID. (laughs) Um, My girlfriend tested positive. I've tested negative, but I have symptoms. So, you know, I guess the test, I don't know the accuracy numbers, but um, yeah, I let my guard down. Um, you know, it's just how you talked about no mask. Um, that same no mask announcement, uh, which came down, I don't remember the date, but as soon as that no mask announcement came down, uh, a new subway station opened up near our house. And of course, we got excited and rode it. And I'm not saying we got COVID from the subway, but, um, you know, people are just more maskless and out and about. So um, I guess that's been the biggest development in my life. But, um, you know, for being uh, a lifelong asthma sufferer, uh, I've been okay. Um, so, you know, so far so good. I guess this is an advertisement. Go get boosted, everybody. Hobo man. <laughs> yeah, gosh, uh, out of the top, out of all the segues, you know, sometimes you just can't <laughs> segue. But yes, um, I think Hobo Man is a is a fair kind of uh, transition here because uh, if you're not familiar with Hobo Man, you will be. See, Hobo Man, it's a state of mind. You see, uh, <laughs> it's it's you know, Sebastian likes to talk about Sigma male mindset. I'm all about <laughs> Hobo Man mindset. You know, it's Yes. Gosh. Uh, the lines of Hobo Man. Yeah. The wisdom of Hobo Man. In another life, that could be me. Like, it's, I can't save you. But and, and from a certain point of view, I have built a railroad because I once had Thomas the Train Engine toys. So, <laughs> so neener, neener. Yeah. The Hobo Man was inside of us all along. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Do you want to do you want to start this one off in terms of yeah, what, what exactly we're talking about? And, uh, and, uh, 
and and listeners who are just like, what the hell is Hobo Man? Um, Hobo Man is a actually, I suppose, pivotal character or pivotal de- literal device in the movie Velvet Buzzsaw. Um, Velvet Buzzsaw is a 2019 Netflix film, and you may recognize it. It's a Netflix original, and it has Jake Gyllenhaal, um, Rene Russo, Tony Collette, Debbie Diggs. It's actually got a really fun cast, and it's directed by Dan Gilroy. And if you think that sounds familiar, he is the guy behind Nightcrawler. And it's got a lot of the same cast here. So instantly, uh, you know, if you love Nightcrawler, you'll you'll dive into this. You know, we'll we'll dive into our thoughts here, but uh, I can say from the outset, and I think you would agree, it's a very entertaining movie. This was a movie that back in 2019, uh, in early 2019, this was a movie I needed uh, for reasons I won't explain. But let's just say I was at a point in my life where I was like, I need a good movie to get out of the the existential hump I was in at that time. And thankfully this movie came along and while it wasn't fulfilling in the sense that I was expecting, it still drew me in, in enough of a way that arguably, arguably it could have been a partial inspiration for this very podcast, as weird as that may sound. And obviously the other part of that being Sebastian and I once went to the Broad and had a gay old time when we were there. As I'm as I'm thinking about it, I still foresee a time when I finally get him to watch it, simply because last time he and I talked about it, I was like, and eh, it's kind of campy. I don't know if you'd like it. It's not as it's not as uh, subversive as uh, Nightcrawler is. But after going back and listening to our season two finale and episode 100 and reflecting on, well, it's not really reflecting, is it? Foreseeing more times where he and I can go to a museum and give our sardonic takes uh, and tangents, if you will, this movie is right up his alley, just based off of that alone and based on what's been a crucial element of this show, which is the pretentiousness of art in the uh how was it described by morph uh in the subversive school no outsider school that's what he says yeah uh, which know. was a term i first heard from ricky gervais of all places <laughs> so there we go yeah and uh morph jake gyllenhaal is just uh a very well written very well acted um i guess yeah satire of the art critic but um you know i if you've seen the trailer, the very first line in the trailer, I think, does a great job of telling you, you know, what his character is like. And I think one of, you know, one of the lines of the movie, you know, he's looking at a certain piece of artwork and he says, unironically, uh, critique is so limiting and emotionally draining. So mm-hmm. just like, um, yeah, it's uh, just that alone, I think, you know, I think, well, you know, we can talk, get into the trailer and how, you know, it follows these this trope of just spoiling the whole movie but um <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but um yeah it's a it's for the plot you know um it, the jake gyllenhaal character morph van der Waal, if that doesn't tell you already kind of an intro he is uh an art critic and it takes place in los angeles it's uh 
really just the pretentious art world and you have a cast of characters and everybody's really player in the art world i guess uh, owners of galleries or art brokers and you know people trying to come up in the business and really it goes haywire when they discover uh, artwork they shouldn't have discovered and and the artwork that they shouldn't have discovered um is very consequential i don't know how much you want to spoil but um yeah i don't know how much you want to spoil tell you what i will i probably should have done this when we watched uh when we did our malignant review but i'll I'll put spoilers in the description of this episode just so people are aware that there will be spoilers for a three-year-old movie i mean even despite all that like i i'll say right now listeners Please pause this episode and go watch the bloody movie and then listen to the rest of what Andrew and I have to say, because, again, trying trying to just encapsulate what this movie is and what it's trying to be, while also realizing that even just the marketing for the movie outside of being spoilerific was also very baffling, just because, again... Part part of what made this movie initially such a movie that caught people's attention was, as you said, uh, it was bringing back the team from Nightcrawler. It was going to be kind of a thriller of sorts, but it was going to have kind of a this kind of idea of like postmodern art coming out and get getting you, whatever that means. And that was something that upon rewatching it. I was very surprised at how much of the movie in the beginning is so rooted in reality. And then the moment that uh, the character of Josephina, a character I'm not a fan of, uh, goes into the artist's home after she finds him dead and spoilers from here on out. And, uh, that's where the the supernatural element is kind of introduced where you see like these little lines of flame or fire effect or whatever and paintings start to move and eyes start moving in the paintings and that was the moment upon watching it for the first time 3 years ago where I'm just thinking whoa Nightcrawler didn't have any of this like supernatural paintings come to life you know, creeping ghosts come out to socialize, if you will, Haunted Mansion. Uh, like, none of none of that happened. And so it did kind of take me out of the movie upon first viewing and also kind of upon rewatching it for the umpteenth time last night. But the way that it plays out is still pretty good. And and the way it's handled, I think, is is great from a creative standpoint. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting, like, comparing this, well, I don't know if it's fair to compare it to Nightcrawler, and you know, it's funny that you said the supernatural elements, which are introduced very early, are a contrast from Nightcrawler, because I think, and I haven't seen Nightcrawler in a minute, so don't quote me on this, but Mm. I feel like there was moments in Nightcrawler that, uh, they don't suggest anything supernatural, but I think um, the fact that Lou Bloom is, you know, I guess, literally bulletproof, um, you know, I think the very end scene where, you know, he totally looks out of uh, not getting shot. Um, I think, you know, there were some moments in that movie where I'm just like, this guy, you know, 
is is supernatural in terms of how we can uh, you know survive all these situations but it was it, it, right from the get-go this movie does tell you things are going to get weird uh, literally and um and it doesn't and again it's you know i was thinking well is this going to be magical realism but you know i never really thought magical realism seems to only uh, be defined as you know weird things that are happy i mean i don't know because i'm just like <laughs> yeah where's the line for magical realism supernatural because this is definitely supernatural um yes this, uh, the dead man was a painter named vetrel Dees, and he had disturbing paintings and he had a disturbing life and he used blood in the paintings and forget if it was clear if he used victim's blood his own blood but human blood in his paintings and these paintings were essentially cursed and yes this josephine character josephina josephine josephina she hops on her opportunity she sees these paintings that she sees her landlord ready to throw them out the next day she picks them up and of course she doesn't notice that they're basically lighting on fire but um yeah no nobody really notices they're all and everyone every single character in this movie is enthralled by the painting and you have characters later in the movie that say you know if you look at this painting they have a certain character in this movie saying you know who you know i think escape escapes unscathed saying you know this these paintings are moving and Mm-hmm. Um, they do have a supernatural effect on everyone, except there's, uh, you know, there's a nuance there or a catch that, you know, the, the paintings may be very, you know, enticing and evil to everybody, but um, they don't, they don't uh, hurt, uh, what is it, discriminately and discriminately. Um, there's a reason, uh, the paintings do target specific people for specific purposes. And that's where it gets into, you know, what is this film really kind of getting at? Yeah, like all of the, and that was something I, I really took notice of watching it was that um, anybody who's trying to make a buck off of these paintings gets their just desserts, whereas anybody else who pays attention to these paintings, specifically artists in the film, like, David Diggs' character, who I, I, and that's just it, I love this movie, but I know this is also part of why I love it, is the fact that there are some very, very flat performances in here, and we're not talking Star Wars prequel flat, this (laughs) is like, yeah, like, this, this is something where either this, like, it has to be part of the satirical element of these are a bunch of people, these are a bunch of actors that are playing very fake people. And I don't want to sound like uh, Holden Caulfield when I say that, but like, you know, phonies. Um, But it's, they're playing people that like emotion and, you know, in in the case of more Fandewald's character, like critique, it's stuff that they utilize in a way that's both very professional, yet also just very, not so genuine um to the point where you know in the very beginning when you know morph is having doubts about his relationship josephina finds out through the girl from stranger things that uh you know her boyfriend who is completely unseen in the film which i kind of love he's he's almost like the bob sacamano of this movie (laughs) um but, but like you know she's having her relationship problems 
and the ways in which the two of them bond and sort of rekindle whatever past relationship romance that they had it comes off as just being so pretentious and so bleh but at the same time you believe it because these characters are so opportunistic and whereas with the artists in this movie between david diggs and my boy john malkovich the thing that i i kind of wondered was and i, I don't know if you have the same thoughts is the reason why they looked at Deese's paintings the way they do, is it because they see the same artistic pains that they may have? Mm. Or is it them or is it them thinking to themselves, yeah, this guy pretty much proved that I can't do anything as good, so why should I bother? That's actually a really interesting perspective. I think you and yeah, like they don't show like Certain characters definitely don't seem, I guess, as enthralled. I don't recall uh, Josephina, who has <clears throat> these paintings in her house, being as mesmerized as, say, other characters. But yeah, Jeffrey uh, mm -hmm. Diggs was this graffiti artist. He was an up-and-comer who was going to have his big moment to shine. And I guess it's kind of alluded that, you know, or no, not alluded, sorry. Or his, his spiel is that, you know, like, I don't care if my art is seen by the world, but again, yeah, he is like essentially a graffiti artist. And yeah, um, and the other artist, um, John Malkovich, who I have to say, I thought was a little underutilized, although Malkovich, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I'll get to that a bit in a minute. But John Malkovich is an artist no, uh, named Piers and um, Piers is an artist who's been sober for four years and from the get go. Um, they imply that, uh, Morph implies that, you know, his best work was when he was uh, going through substance abuse or alcoholism. So, yeah, actually, that is an interesting analysis because really what um, life struggles does somebody like Morph, what does he see in the paintings? What does uh, Redora Hayes, the rich gallery owner, see in these paintings? Um, although I feel like there's little hints uh, of her, like, punk rock past. But, um, yeah, um, it that that's an interesting take and you know um not to hop around too much but when you're talking about these flat performances um i was reading something online and i thought there was kind of a really interesting parallel and i wouldn't put it past down gilroy i don't think down gilroy is a dummy at all and i know some people definitely didn't think the movie hit as well i think he's smarter than that i think nightcrawler is already kind of evidence that he's smarter than that Maybe there's aspects that he doesn't hit on. He's not, you know, Scorsese exactly. But uh, there was a line that Redora said, and I'm going to read it off to this IMDb quote page, that uh, the art gallery owner at one point in the movie says, uh, we don't sell durable goods. We peddle perception, thin as a bubble. And I thought that was really interesting to think of that as kind of like the movie nodding to its audience that, um, you know, essentially if you see these performances, and yeah, it's kind of like, you know, like you just explained, you understand that these characters are supposed to be vapid and thin, but um, I do like that the movie appears to kind of nod at that. Yeah, those flat performances are a little off-putting. Um, <laughs> I don't think any of the actors or actresses are bad, bad, uh, you know, uh, are not capable. But yeah, I guess I guess it's difficult to see somebody like Malkovich in like a supporting role. So you know that guy can really bring it, but at the same time, if you're frustrated by that, 
there's other people that really bring it like tony collette as gretchen yes uh, um an art i suppose broker who <laughs> that has one of the more entertaining uh deaths in the movie um and i guess spoiler again here there is <laughs> an interactive art piece called sphere and uh, it's a literal sphere with holes to stick your arm in and it's supposed to make you feel things i guess you know maybe it gives you a massage or maybe it pokes you but uh it's not really explained but uh, one night um the sphere malfunctions and rips her arm off and uh, it is a d's death uh, the artist again this is somebody who profited off the painting but um you know really hopping around here but the horror elements in this movie uh are are fun you you get you can have fun with the art and i do like that the movie had fun with it some deaths were more exciting than others and we'll get to mm-hmm. our favorite but um yeah sphere definitely a highlight but uh, again showing how this movie uh really kind of has fun how do you say that i'm trying to think what my favorite would be I mean, I, I guess it, it's time. We have to talk about Hobo Man because uh, <laughs> Hope, Hobo Man, uh, which, uh, you know, were a very... So, okay, I guess the proper introduction. Hobo Man is an art exhibit uh, that Morph walks by and criticizes. And what it is, it's a human-sized robot, uh, an animatronic, uh, mm-hmm. kind of obvious animatronic, I guess, or, you know, uh, almost uncanny, I would say wearing like some sort of uh, face mask. Um, um, he titled Hobo Man, and he has, I suppose, cryptic lines of, uh, I can't save you. And uh, I, I once built a railroad. I believe that's it. And you kind of get a hit, uh, idea early on that, you know, something's up here. But Hobo Man is also responsible for um, Morph's end. And... Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, when we talk about Hobo Man, I was just like mesmerized by Hobo Man because I was just like, what does Hobo Man mean? What is Hobo Man? Well, it's what's fascinating with Hobo Man as well. And, I, and this was, I think, part of what really drew me into the movie initially. And, and subsequently, I found out way more about Hobo Man than I ever thought I would need to. <laughs> And yet it actually draws a parallel to something that I, I've either maybe once mentioned on the show or, or maybe something I, I mentioned to you once in the past. But outside of the obvious elements of this, this film has its lineage with Nightcrawler is that Hobo Man in a lot of ways kind of indicates where art may be going. And I know I'm kind of getting into my own sort of art critic hat <laughs> yeah. here, but I that's whether we like it one way or another, that's kind of part of the DNA of the show, sadly. Um, but but uh, so so don't come after me, Hobo Man, please. Um, but uh, there's something about Hobo Man that to me really symbolizes the idea of where art today wants to go. And in reality, it's either a big letdown or it's trying to be something that people think art isn't and it's easily something i could picture in an art gallery of any kind whether it's at a modern art museum like you know or whether it's at the broad it's 
like even just upon seeing it in the film, like I looked at it and was like, yeah, that's the kind of creepy stuff I'm used to now when I go into those museums, because there is this idea of we need to bridge the biological with the technical. So, but also it has to embody some kind of sentiment on the discourse. And, you know, he, Hobo Man is dressed up in kind of a red, white, and blue, almost Uncle Sam style suit. And he's got crutches and he's got one leg that's very visible, very visibly robotic. And apparently, and this is what kind of blew me away a little bit, apparently part of the logic of of Hobo Man came from uh, came from Dan Gilroy writing Superman Lives, which was going to be the Tim Burton Superman film. The way he described it to Business Insider was that the character represents his attempt to bring Superman to the screen. Uh, I wanted to draw a connection, do a piece that has to do with a superhero. You know, it's funny, too, because I, I now it clicks in my head that, well, you know, look at his color scheme. Mm-hmm. What what throws you off is just like his lines. I think, you know, the fact I can't save you. Well, you know, I think now that's kind of an obvious callback to like Superman. but. Um, I once built a railroad. It really throws you for a loop. Um, and uh, <laughs> I also think there's something too about Hobo Man. Mork walks up to him in the beginning of the movie and criticizes Hobo Man and mm-hmm. he says that you know Hobo Man is what if he calls him like a, a retread essentially. Um, you know this is similar to an art piece from four years ago. It's uncreative. Slams Hobo Man on the spot. That's where he made his gravest mistake. But Hobo Man, um, yeah, I, I think there's definitely the creepiest thing about the movie, too, I think. Sphere is really creepy. But Hobo Man, I think, you know, is really what makes this a horror, well, horror slash comedy or dark comedy, black comedy. But Hobo Man, yeah. the creepiest thing in the whole movie is his movements. Um, I think there is, and I saw this online, uh, some fair criticism about the way he takes out Morph, but still creepy as hell. I mean, he ends up confronting Morph in a storage facility. Morph has not mm-hmm. run. Robot chases after him, snaps his neck. Um, and watching it, I do think some of the mystique of Hobo Man uh, fell, fell apart when he started running. Um, Instead of just creepily, you know, uh, limping along, but still pretty, pretty effective. And that face is that face sticks with you. It it adds to not only just the whole idea of how do we make artwork look as human as possible, which you do kind of get a glimpse of that at one point when Redora is in a kind of immersive exhibition of a... um, it's like a, a sort of a, a typical suburban home and she sits at the dining room table and there's a little girl, like a model of a little girl sitting at the table. Oh, yeah. There's parents on the couch. There's a son getting into the refrigerator and there's something that scene always, I think out of all the scenes in the movie, that's one of the ones that actually does weird me out a little bit simply because I keep thinking, and this kind of goes into a, a, a my second big question of the episode i'm going to give you like 
what weirds me out in that scene is I'm thinking those have to just be dummies. Like Hollywood is good enough at getting a good dummy down to look realistic. And I speaking from experience, having seen some in person, but at the same time, they look plastic enough yet real enough to potentially be a little girl sitting very, very still. And, you know, during this scene, this is when uh, one of the guys from the collective that David Diggs is a part of is like, you know, hey, lady. And Rene Russo's like, back the fuck up. You know, yeah. and it, you, you do get a little bit of sort of the petty squabbling that I like uh, just because it's 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 so dumb. But do you think Hobo Man is a person in a suit or do you think for certain parts in the movie when he's still it's an actual animatronic? Well, that's a really good question. Um, uh, that's a really good question. I think, you know, <laughs> they can there can be pretty impressive animatronics. I think, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the family in uh, the art exhibit, the, I guess, typical American family. Because, again, it's just that weird, uncanny valley. It just, mm-hmm. it, it, you, you think about it beyond the scene and you're just like, is that real? You know, well, beyond thinking, like, what does this artwork mean? What is it trying to tell me? And Gosh, I guess in a weird way, the movie turns you into an art critic, you know. But, um, <laughs> yeah, Hobo Man definitely, uh, I don't know. I want to say he was an animatronic in the first scene, but that's a pretty impressive animatronic. I mean, I think when he runs, it starts to get a little more clear. But, um, yeah, uh, it's this movie, uh, what is it, costuming and all that stuff, uh, Pretty good, I think, you know, and, uh, you know, it was, uh, I think, I guess the quote-unquote quote monsters in this movie were really interesting. So, yeah, I couldn't, uh, yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. So, I I had, I had wondered this for a long time, and it wasn't until upon last night's viewing that I finally dug deeper and thought, okay, what, what, what's, what's the deal here? Like, is this... What is this? A robot? Is this a person? I mean, come on. What's the answer? And so um, it turns out it is an actor, uh, Mark Steger, Steger uh, who previously worked with Netflix at that time, previously worked with Netflix playing the Demogorgon in Stranger Things. Oh, wow. Okay. So, because I, I, I was thinking too last night, like there's some moments where you see kind of the you see the inner workings of Robo Man, and and you see parts of you know parts of his neck, his legs. But then it got me thinking. Well, Ryan, they can do that with Terminators in movies. Like you can have real life Arnold walking around in the film. I've been bringing up Arnold a lot on this show. <laughs> I don't know why, but <laughs> you can have real life Arnold walking around, and he can have like his whole arm just be robotic. And they can just cover that up with like a green screen sleeve. Um, that's true. And so that's what led me down the rabbit hole of, you know, what's the deal with Hobo Man? And sure enough, not only is he an actor, but I found the pivotal part of this Business Insider story that kind of explains why exactly he's even a point in this film because of Gilroy. Um, Gilroy told Business Insider he wanted the character to represent the aftermath of his Superman after the games played by Hollywood in trying to make Superman lives. Uh, I was there for all the visual tests and the design of so many elements of it, Gilroy said of the production of Superman Lives, 
which in the early days of the Internet became a viral sensation when photos of Nicolas Cage dressed in a Superman costume were leaked online. So I wanted to draw a connection, do a piece that has to do with a superhero. So in some ways, we can thank uh, something else I never thought I'd hear myself say. We can thank Nicolas Cage for Hobo (laughs) Man. Oh, man. Uh, That could could be the name of this episode. um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, the gift keeps on giving, although I have you know, reservations about mass unbearable weight of massive talent, but um, yeah, gosh, uh, what a nice little full circle kind of Hollywood nod um, because yeah, again, Hobo Man, I think it's even the very first art piece you see in the whole movie. So I think so. And Dan Gilroy definitely <laughs> was enthralled by Hobo Man himself. With the rest of the film, I mean, it starts off, you know, introducing all of these characters and they're schmoozing and in some cases literally schmoozing in other cases trying to connect artists with other art gallery owners uh you've got the one character that i both can't stand because he's such a hipster yet i also just love the fact that he's like following john malkovich around um the character of john don don yeah which is the most like, that's the other thing with this movie that always gets me is this if the characters aren't pretentious enough, their names are like <laughs> that's oh, my God. Between, you know, Redora, uh, Redora Hayes, more fan to Wall, and then John Malkovich is just peers. And you made a comment earlier about how he is kind of underutilized. That's my only other critique of the film as well is like, I feel like he could be used a bit more. But maybe that's the point, is that he's on the periphery because of his sober slump, and then he's introduced to Deese's work, and it just further takes him down a rabbit hole he doesn't want to go with his art. And so because he's not trying to be an opportunist with the Deese works, it, it just it mean it's the reason why he's at the end of the film, you know, swirling. Yeah. swirling in the sand you know alive that's a decent analysis because yeah the movie does show that he is um uh, i guess having artists whatever the version of artist writer's block is totally, yeah um there's probably work for that too but um yeah and speaking of john don 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 um you know it is funny because i guess he at one point is pierce's agent or broker and he he goes to his um he goes to his factory or his artist studio and he walks in, he sees a pile of trash. He's like, this is magnificent. And, uh, Piers, John Malkovich tells him like, that's not art. So yeah, totally. <laughs> when he said like, you know, if he's not pretentious, no, but he definitely is one of the more pretentious people, but his, uh, he also has, um, an, an interesting death. Um, you know, that's another one too, where I don't know if, um, if I was, if the death was satisfying in terms of did he deserve it, but he did try to profit off of these D's artworks. And, you know, just going back to the whole point of the movie, this D's artwork is going to kill people who profit off of. And uh, John Don Don was uh, opportunist is not as too light. I would say, I guess um, you know, Don Don totally took advantage of it. So he deserved it. But yeah, again, <laughs> I didn't realize all the characters uh, really didn't be weren't really introduced by their last names and I think you know that's something in the beginning of the movie kind of throws you for a loop when they just throw all kinds of weird names at you this was definitely a closed caption <laughs> watch for me 
<laughs> you have Morph, who he's the one character that I think, despite whatever reputation the character had in the beginning, he does kind of go through a bit of a, a, a righteous streak in a good way where he, he does kind of come out of being the, the snobby schmuck that he's been. And I think part of that is maybe he gets a bit humbled by going through Deese's work and finding out about his past, which upon initial viewing, I really enjoyed that just because it gave not only a little bit more flavor of just LA geography, but also it had more of a, dare I say, vaguely journalistic aspect where he's trying to uncover the facts of Vitral D's, you know, and it's, it's cool and it's interesting, but at the same time, like, you know, you get interrupted by the typical petty snafus and arguments. And I I love, I love it when he's on the phone with Gretchen and he's like screaming at her in his car that she's irrelevant. He's tossing his phone. Like there's something about that scene that I love, but that's because you can't get enough of a good Gyllenhaal meltdown. Um, like when he goes off on David Diggs, who him and uh, Josephina start a relationship. Yeah. And he has that great line of my admiration for your work is completely evaporated. <laughs> yeah. Oh, love it. Just. And again, it's it's just part of the, the annoyingness of the of all these of all these characters. But. It all works together, it all blends in in a way i mean even we haven't talked about her enough but redora uh renee russo's character it was her character that ultimately proved to me that there is a camp to this film and it has to be intentional because there's a moment where she's on the phone and i i want to say it's after i gotta look at my notes here uh i want to say it is after gretchen's death uh, there's like a moment where she's on the phone with somebody talking about it. And if I didn't know any better, I'd think she was just saying the lines. But because of what the movie has already presented to us, it goes back to what you said earlier. Like there's this vapidness where somebody she worked closely with just died. And she doesn't know how to react to it other than to just be like, how could this happen? Yeah, You know, and the way she says it, like it, even just how I said it now, that doesn't do it justice because it really is fake enough to the point where you're like, yeah, that's how somebody in that situation would react to a contemporary dying horribly. Um, and I will say, speaking of characters who die horribly before John Don Don kicks the bucket, there's the scene with the private investigator, the, the yeah. framing of that whole scene and the lighting is so it's i i don't even know how to describe it but uh, you know other than uh looking at my notes i have terrible in all caps um <laughs> but but i again i take that as part of the point of the film john don don's got a pri- I just keep saying that name he gets this private investigator and it's almost as though it's trying to channel what he thinks he's doing is being something cool and we're kind of seeing it through his eyes, I guess. Maybe I'm really reading into the scene. The other cool thing about that scene, by the way, is the private investigator is the same guy who rejects Lou Bloom in the beginning of Nightcrawler. I knew he looked familiar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And he's on like TV commercials. So every time he pops up on TV, I'm like, oh, hey, it's another guy from Nightcrawler. I think this may have been the first film to bring up the Broad. Yeah, ever. and they do kind of poke fun at it because in the beginning in Redor's office, some office folks are talking about it. And the artist who is, uh, I guess, resigned to just hanging lights in an art gallery during the day, you know, not, he was like, yeah, I'm an artist. Uh, I'm at, I'm at the Broad, N- not the Broad, uh, the Broad. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, uh, you know, it's, a, I, I do, I did really enjoy kind of the movies kind of nods. Well, you know, when we talk about LA movies, I wouldn't say this is necessarily an LA movie, um, but you know, there's this, like, they does pretty heavily feature the Broad and uh, what is it? You know, there's a scene, there's a very brief scene where, um, what's your, uh, Tony Collette, Gretchen parks across mm-hmm. the street from the Broad and you see, you know, the Disney concert hall and such. And it's like, yeah, no, it's an L.A. movie. The movie starts off in Miami, but it is definitely an L.A. movie through and through. I mean, really, the first death, which we didn't talk about, um, I forget if the guy's name is Bryson. Played yeah. by Billy Magnuson, a.k.a. Uh, well, I won't go there other than I'll, I'll just say R.I.P. Felix Leiter. Anyway, continue. Hmm. Mm, um, yeah, and um, <laughs> his death is that he just drives up into the L.A. National Forest and you know, somewhere we're just overlooking the entire Los Angeles basin and he encounters his own death. And actually, you know, so, and, and his death is that he's driving along in his truck with all these D's paintings in the back, taking him to a storage site in Lancaster and uh, the D's paintings. Uh, well, I guess he drops a cigarette on himself. He burns himself. He crashes. Uh, this is as the D's paintings are beginning to come to life. And he and he walks. sees Dees in his rearview mirror too. That's it's right. Really creepy. Yeah. Actually, that was actually a nice jump scare. And like, oh yeah, I really love to like, um, you know, the movie's not too crazy on like the the special effects or the CGI, <laughs> but I really love too like how the painting just like there's like some sort of two faced painting in his passenger seat, and it just like kind of like turns and looks at him and like mm-hmm. really subtle. And I'm just like, I like that it's like it wasn't like too over the top. It was nice and creepy. And um, this guy, Bryson, slams into an abandoned gas station, puts out the fire, goes inside for help. As he's washing his burns, uh, there's a painting, and it gets it's very, like, this very kitschy style monkeys <laughs> fixing a 1950s truck. And as he's uh, washing his hands, they strangle him, which, and, you know, never heard from again. And I thought, you know, I enjoyed the everything. Uh, you know, his death was fine. but. Um, I what was I gonna say? One thing that I thought was kind of like missing was, and I thought this was one thing I had issue with the movie is that there was just like these kind of like gaps, or I guess some people had referred to it as just like plot or pacing issues, because he presumably disappears. Um, you see him die in the gas station later, and then like later uh, you see uh, the women Josephina and Redora pick up his truck, ask was there any other paintings, being pretty clueless. And it just felt like there was a little bit missing there. Like the cops didn't look in the gas station or anything like that. Um, and that's another thing in this movie too. We ignore uh, the authorities. We ignore police. Nobody ever calls 911. Nobody calls for help. Nobody really fight backs in this movie. And mm-hmm. it's kind of more of a, a a commentary on if people like have that fight or flight reaction, which you know, everyone uh, 
runs away. Nobody fights. Um, so it's also, I guess, kind of a mini commentary on how these people are kind of spineless. But um, yeah, I feel like that was kind of like a weird gap. And then also not too long after um, when Morph is in a relationship with Josephina, uh, they have an argument about Morph um, not breaking up fully with his boyfriend. And actually there's an aspect there I wanted to touch on, but mm-hmm. um, Morph not break, like helping his boyfriend move or getting some missed calls. And it's just one of those things that seems to just kind of come out of nowhere. That And I guess that's kind of like, it's a pacing thing. I'm not I'm not a film expert by any means, but it did feel like there was a few things missing. And I also did see someone else highlight Morph says that he, you know, had all these visions, but you only see his visions come out like once or twice. But when the first time he says it out loud, that he's had them recurring. So it makes me curious if there was some stuff left on the cutting room floor or something like that, because I, I don't think Dan Gilroy is sloppy by any means, but gave me some pause yeah i i mean that that was always something to me that kind of rattled around in my head in terms of just i don't know how to describe it the the sort of the the pacing issue with the film i always kind of took it in i always took it in stride as just the fact that this is all happening while people are going on with their daily lives, going to work, going into their offices in downtown. To your point about, you know, it doesn't feel always feel so much like it's in L.A. The thing that always gets me and it especially got me the most of all the times I've seen it, it was last night where I was like, yeah, see what you're doing there is a lot of the film is set in a lot of the same locations throughout whether it's the hayes gallery which is where redora works it's named after her uh where gretchen works which they don't really specify but it's i think the outside of the mocha uh but they have like llama l-a-m-a which i would assume los angeles museum of art kind of draped on the outside of it and then they have like these kind of establishing these ominous establishing shots of LA. Some of them are pretty generic. There's one that I love, which is almost like, it's like this horizon shot where you see the city and you can see downtown off in the distance, but it's just all this black. And then just like this orange line where the horizon is. And it's a beautiful shot, but at the same time, between the music and also the fact that every time there is an establishing shot like that, the camera kind of moves forward. Like, you know, it, it starts to feel a little bit like a like a cheaply made, not a horror film, but just a cheaply made film where we just need a sort of establishing shot of wherever. And yeah. there's moments like that where you're kind of like, OK, maybe it could have been a little bit cleaner. Maybe it could have used a different cinematographer. Like, I don't know. Actually, I'm going to look that up, see if it's the same guy that did the cinematography for nightcrawler he did the robert ellswit he did the cinematography for there will be blood and good night and good luck wow um just very quickly 2014 oh wow okay so he did the he did do the cinematography for uh nightcrawler huh yeah so he's not a schmuck by any means (laughs) right 
it makes you think like you know maybe there was other issues with this movie i wonder if it was like maybe you know i and again know nothing about the film industry it makes you wonder if there's like some stuff overhead from a producer you know that any like you know uh, any other oversights or maybe it's just you know limited budget i do see that it is on the budgets on the smaller side i'd imagine a lot went to getting the cast but um, there was no other indication that this movie is poorly made by any means. I think right. there were some detractors saying that, oh, it looked like Netflix quality, which, you know, I guess that is a, a derogatory connotation nowadays. But um, I didn't really get that sense. You know, I, I thought there was enough fun, good shots. And I do remember, I don't remember the exact orange, uh, you know, sun, sun um, sky scene that you're talking about, but I remember liking one of the shots. But I think at the very end of the movie, uh, mm. if, if you thought that the movie had, you know, subpar cinematography or average, I thought the very closing shot with Redora sitting alongside her cat, um, and then it hits you that it resembles a D's artwork that was in the yes. movie. That is where really, like, the movie is this, like, yeah, no, like, <laughs> we know what we're doing. Like, this, yeah. That was, like, a beautiful setup. I, I, I didn't know which of us was going to mention it, but that death, that lead-up, is probably my favorite just because you know by this point by this point in the film and obviously we haven't really we haven't given a a very linear retelling of the film that's why it's like hey listeners go watch the film (laughs) um but you know after all that's said and done after people are either disappearing or they're popping up dead whether it's gretchen dying from sphere which that in of itself is a great scene. It's it's easily probably my second favorite of the sort of dramatic art killing uh, these opportunists kind of scenes. Um, and then, of course, you have Morph's death. Morph's... Jeez Louise, I'm going to have to try and say this as best I can. I'll leave. Morph's death at the hands of Hobo Man. Um, and then by that point, because by that before that before he even before he does die morph is already being haunted not only by deese's work popping up literally popping up out of paintings haunting him in immersive art experiences which i I will say when he goes into that one with the whale sounds yeah and before it it's all these people just screaming his own words back at him and then they flip it after he's like traumatized and he's like on the breaking point, if not, he's already past the breaking point. And the yeah. guy's like, Oh no, actually you're going to be, you're going to be hearing whale sounds. And then yeah. they close the door. He's sitting there. He's still mopey. And the moment the whale sounds hit, he just runs for the door. And yeah. Bolts. Love that scene. It's. Ah, uh, but by that point, he's already also made it clear to Redora that, something's going on and naturally he looks and sounds like a maniac and he again he's still seeing things he sees gretchen and her stump arm and a bus advertisement and so yeah and also by that point he's haunted it that he was urged by josephina and as part of their weird relationship where Josephina is really trying to get her name out there and really trying to act like she's making a huge difference with everything. Despite the fact that it seems like she's really at the bottom of the totem pole with regards to the Hayes gallery and the way Redora views her. Um, 
she urges Morph to write a critical review on her ex-boyfriend. And it results in him getting into a car crash. I think he gets in a car crash and winds up in a coma. Yeah, yeah. Which I should note, the line delivery when Morph hears that is so cheesy. I love it. Um, like, whoever the actress they got for that scene, give her an award, please. Um, but yeah. he's tormented by that. And then finally, he writes this review on all the Deese work that pretty much outs everybody for being both an opportunist and it makes him look like a total nutcase to the point where, and I could be wrong here. Was he trying to like leave LA afterwards? Yeah, I think that was happened because he hired the assistant to catalog his paintings and it looked like he was just trying to leave town and, you know, he took some Deese paintings with him and yeah. part of his uh, collection, which which is why Hobo Man, who they reference, it's like definitely like blink and you miss it. They reference that Hobo Man's in storage as well. Um, so, you know, it's not exactly out of nowhere that Hobo Man pops up. But um, yeah, he's definitely trying to leave town. He writes that article. But, you know, I guess there is that that is a little bit of a redeeming factor for Morph is that he doesn't care about his career at that point. I guess it's a little bit of fear of self-preservation, but at the same time, Morph's not exactly the worst guy. He's really just trying to convince everyone, throwing his career down the drain to say, like, let's get out of here. So um, I guess in that sense, Morph had a, a sliver of you know redeeming qualities there. Yeah, like when he when Hobo Man does catch up to him, I, I will admit upon my first viewing, I was pretty bummed. I, I was a little bit like, I didn't want him to die. Like, yeah, come on, man. Um, but you know, he meets his untimely demise. Uh, of course, I have to mention very quickly the fact that, you know, he goes and gets his eyes checked out by his eye doctor. And then his eye doctor gives him the typical shades that you wear after your eyes have been dilated. And I love I, I remember saying this that year because I, I got new glasses that same year. Yeah. Um, And I, I couldn't help but think about it at the time <laughs> when my eye doctor gave me those same kinds of glasses, sunglasses, if you will, shades, whatever. Yeah. And under my breath, I did catch myself saying, these are heinous. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, so I, that gave me a good laugh. But then when Redora is on the path to realizing maybe Morph was right, and she does have that near-death experience with one of her artworks in her backyard, um, to the point where she's taking all the artwork out of her home, that whole buildup to me is what makes her death the, the the sort of keystone of the film because she's trying to wa- basically wash her hands of any blood in terms of everyone who's died and trying to make a profit off of Ventral Dece. And yet, despite the fact that, you know, she knows she sees the painting of his that she has, she turns it around, she doesn't want to look at it. And in that moment when she goes into her backyard and she sits down and you notice the two cacti. And then here comes the cat and like that perfect recreation of that artwork. It always gets me just because I know, A, the movie's almost over, sadly. Mm -hmm. But also the whole idea is that any artwork can kill you. Well, people do consider their tattoos artwork. And, you know, she's got the Velvet Buzzsaw tattoo. And let's just say... Uh, PSA, don't stick your hand in a buzzsaw, ladies and gentlemen. Um, 
you had mentioned about the fact that it just sort of seems like there's something missing or there's kind of a stiltedness to people dying and how it just kind of seems like, unlike Nightcrawler, there isn't that element of the uh, presumably Los Angeles police detectives getting involved with these deaths. And the big glaring, it's not a problem, but just kind of the glaring thing that does kind of take you a little bit out of the movie is the fact that uh, the the gal from Stranger Things who plays the character Coco, uh, which again, perfect name for this world. Um, but the fact that she's at every, or she discovers all these people after they've died. Yeah, that was the <laughs> and good she keeps day. she keeps hopping from job to job to job. Like, oh, that poor girl. <laughs> I know, and uh, you even got scared for her at the end of the movie when she drives away with the cat, and the cat has a reaction when uh, the velvet buzzsaw does its thing, and, you know, at the same time, Coco's going back to Michigan, and uh, <laughs> she takes the uh, Vetral Jesus cat with her, and the cat freaks out at the time, and for a split second, I thought, oh gosh, is this cat going to cause a car accident somehow? Wouldn't put it past the movie, it wouldn't be that implausible, but thankfully, she escapes unscathed. Yeah, thankfully she somehow gets out before traffic gets wild in that part of downtown, presumably. <laughs> uh, and yeah, it, it's with with again with all these characters, you know, with how they're dressed, the locations they go to, and obviously it's it's not as though there's a lot of there's not really any kind of landmark locations minus you know we, we mentioned uh, you mentioned the Broad and the the Disney Music Hall, but the LA element to it is more it's it's I don't want to say it's surface level it, it's definitely environmental when it comes to moments where like when Redora and Josefina look at Bryson's truck and you can probably gather that they're somewhere in downtown uh likely not too far away from the arts district I don't know you see like the street signs like you'd know it's LA yeah. even for uh People not who have never been in LA but seen enough LA movies it's the street signs it's just the you know I always like to say the sunlight hits different because you kind of could tell like it's a very LA in that sense and uh, yeah I also think in just like the uh well obviously the dive bar scene at the end that definitely looks like some place in downtown oh yes and um and of course in the uh, snooty attitudes and uh actually you know a very minor point that I enjoyed as well is that uh, the film establishes that these people are rich, but they're not wealthy, or that should be the way around. Like, Morph drives uh, a Mini Cooper. So it's not like they're driving Ferraris around, necessarily. Like, these are still, like, you know, uh, L.A. wannabes, I guess, in almost a sense. So uh, in that sense, too, uh, not really sure if that's an L.A. thing, but enjoyed how the movie was also a little bit grounded in that these people weren't filthy rich. You you get that when you see uh, what is it? Josephina's got her Mercedes, and this was also a really random thing that I, I what we're talking about right now actually just really touches on it in a great way. Morph uses a flip phone. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. Like yeah, like I I noticed that and I was just flabbergasted because I'm just like wait. Wh- wh- 
And, you know, the film doesn't explain it. I, I would have to go back and pay attention to see if he uses a smartphone elsewhere. Presumably he does. Um, now, you wanted to mention something as well about Morph's uh, sexuality. Yeah, I thought the movie was almost hinting at some sort of take or, you know, some sort of commentary on his bisexuality because Morph in the beginning of the movie uh, has, you know, they show, they show, I don't want to say explicitly, but they show you pretty, you know, right away that he has relationships with men and women and uh, nobody, you know, obviously this is not an issue for any character, let alone mm. any, you or anything like that, but I thought there was something interesting in that the sphere, and we didn't even talk about the sphere death and uh, kind of the dark humor of the, uh, you know, sphere death. But um, I think it's okay. interesting in the sphere and that, and this is actually something I have to credit my girlfriend, Rachel, with missing because um, around the sphere, the, so the sphere is this big uh, chrome orb, uh, maybe about four feet high, four feet wide or whatever. But um, around the sphere, it has like all these signs that say like, uh, like, like stick it in any hole and have fun or something like that. Um, it has like a, some sort of like, you know, kind of like, you know, innuendo there. But um, and Morph, I don't think even had an interaction with uh, the sphere itself. But uh, I don't know. Like, I feel like the movie was uh, and there's another scene. And of course, I should have written into my notes. I have notes about a lot of the other scenes here, but uh, I, I forget the other point about Morph's uh, sexuality. But I feel like the movie, maybe they cut something out. But like, I feel like there was kind of... Um, small bits about his sexuality and I couldn't tell if the movie uh, and again I don't think Dan Gilroy was looking to you know make light of anything or poke at anything at all but I feel like the, there was definitely some more like sexual innuendo in the movie that uh, was really subtle I, I think Sphere is a little more obvious but um, I feel like the movie and you know in reading about this movie too I did see that uh, you know and this is again Wikipedia but <laughs> You know, he wrote the more Vanderwall character to be sexually fluid because he believes that sexuality is far more fluid than society does. And, you know, I just feel like this movie had some sort of like very deep, very down inside commentary on like sexuality. And I feel like I missed it. But I feel like when I saw that with the sphere, I'm just like, I, I, I don't know. I just got the sense that that had to be more than just like a cheeky little joke. Interesting. No, I, I never thought of that with fear. I, I always noticed that Morph's interaction with it is very disconnected. Like he doesn't he doesn't stick his hand in, inside any of the holes of sphere. He just if anything, he just kind of looks at it almost with disdain. His boyfriend in the beginning plays really no role other than it, it kind of gives him, I guess, a, a moment to think fondly about Josefina, which he does. There's that great great scene where he's he's on his laptop and he's typing and he's completely naked. Yeah. And uh I'm blanking on the boyfriend's name, but he walks in and he's yeah. like, Oh, yeah. join me in the join me in the pool. Oh, this looks great. I remember once seeing a meme somewhere poking fun at Nightcrawler, uh Nightcrawler, poking fun <laughs> at Velvet Buzzsaw adjacent to Nightcrawler where they showed a picture of Lou Bloom and then a side-by-side -side of that with Morph naked on his laptop with the caption of, look how the mighty have fallen or something like that. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, is a little jab at the movie, but... Yeah. 
I, I don't know. Maybe it's incorporating Morph's sexuality as part of the. I, I, I'd hate to go this far of saying maybe it's got something to do with a critique on the fluidity of the art community. I don't know. I mean, it's because obviously with yeah. each of these characters, you know, you've got people that are from out of town, like, you know, Coco's from Michigan. Uh, Josephina is clearly British based on her accent. Uh, John Don Don sounds like he has a South African accent, even though the actor who plays him, I believe is also a Brit. All of these people have been brought together and they all are from various walks of life, but at the same time, they all come from the same school of, you know, I, I could use this word a million more times, but pretentiousness that it drowns out whatever is used to sort of indicate or describe who they are. You know, like with John Don Don, you know, he's, he's got the earring, he's got the accent, he's got the hipstery hairdo. Yeah. Uh, but at the end of the day, he's just as much of an opportunist as Redora. And she's, you know, kind of a, a retired Joan Jett type. So, yeah. And again, that, that is probably the most half-baked take I've had so far in the movie. And again, hate to sound like I'm throwing stuff at the wall, but I promise I will return with the theory here because I feel like, again, yeah, maybe this is kind of like my issue with, you know, some of the, the, the pacing type stuff, but... Mm -hmm. It does feel like something was left on the cutting room floor, basically. I totally wish this movie was either on DVD or that they had more stuff available on Netflix. Maybe there's more stuff available on YouTube and I just haven't checked. But given that this is exclusively a Netflix film, there's no chance of getting it on DVD, sadly. Uh, but any behind the scenes stuff I'd love to see because part of the description of the film on wikipedia have to go there satirical horror film now say what you will about the horror elements like certainly people die horrible violent visceral gory deaths in this film but there is kind of this jaws 2 slasher film freddy krueger kind of build up with each one the question, though, is how do you present each of these deaths in a way that feels built up properly based on the character? And for my part, I can say that I think they all work. It's just whether or not there was more that not only added to each of those deaths, but just to the overall film. Bryson's death happens too early in the film to really establish too much with him. And, you know, like exactly. his motivations and what he's getting punished for. I even saw the point being made that Bryson didn't really profit off of the paintings by that point. I guess, you know, if he got paid for driving them, <laughs> is Deese, like, doing, like, technicalities, like, to kill these, whatever. But, like, everybody else, it's pretty clear. But uh, I hear what you're getting at. I think, um, yeah, like, when Gretchen dies by Sphere, um, she didn't really have much, well, they didn't, why, oh, never mind. They did show interactions with her with it, but I guess it was the first time she had stuck her head into Sphere. Um mm. And, um, yeah, the velvet buzzsaw, pretty self-explanatory towards the end. But, yeah, I guess, you know, you start thinking, like, maybe did, did Morph deserve another interaction with Hobo Man? Or, like, do we need, like, some sort of reminder? Um, and then, you know, the death we didn't talk about, Josephina dying by graffiti somehow, which was a really trippy visual. And Oh, yeah. I enjoyed it. I think it was a little strange, though, to understand 
what exactly happened. I, I just think of the Matrix when the mirror goes down Neil's throat and like <laughs> I would imagine that this kills somebody. But yeah, uh, or like drowns in paint or something. But um, yeah, I, I I see what you mean because it feels like every death could have been enhanced by like thirty second kind of scene or like some more build up. Um, although with Don Don uh, his hanging. I think it is kind of maybe it's unintentionally funny. Uh, maybe I'm the only one that thought this was unintentionally funny. That you know he he he's hanged and no one suspects murder. It's just like what is it like? Is it like a cool thing? You know, is it glamorizing suicide in a weird way? Like nobody questions that superficial. Like Pierce has like a passing. Like oh, he seemed like his normal self, but like nobody questions that Don Don hanged himself as it's like mm-hmm. the artsy way to go out. There is also that great moment in that in the, the follow-up to John's death after Coco finds him at the funeral. Uh, not she finds him at the funeral. She finds him. <laughs> yeah. Fast forward, there's the funeral. And I, I, it, it really made me chuckle a little too hard. Um, when, and I think this is trying to build up why Morph is who he is and why people also not only respect him but why there's growing disdain for him when he goes to the funeral and the line that he says looking at the casket yeah is that casket what color is that smog orange and it's just like yeah <laughs> and i can visualize the casket in my head so that that that's it's adding it's adding to my my uh my moment of humor here of, of just like oh my god this yeah movie. and not like smoky orange smog orange so, yeah. Yeah. it's like <laughs> very stinging um just in line with this comment about the uh, car crash and yeah morph is just the wealth of dialogue the other thing that adds to the cheesy camp element of this movie is the cgi there's moments where it's phenomenal like when you see Deese's artworks move yeah it's horrifying. It's creepy. It's the kind of thing that would have scared the pants off of me as a kid. But then you have, and maybe maybe it's just because it was flat CG, and then all of a sudden they made it 3D. I'm not sure, but like when the monkeys kill Bryson, at first they look just about as bad as the monkeys in the original Jumanji, <laughs> and then and then before they start grabbing him, they actually look not so bad like the cgi in the film is very all over the place you mentioned it earlier about josephina's death it's a great scene and and honestly you almost have to look at each of these deaths like like how visceral do they need to be towards the person being affected or towards the person being murdered essentially and with josephina it it works because she wants more than anything to be such an overzealous, overachieving opportunist, and yet she essentially gets drowned by paint. And again, it's visually stunning. It looks great. In fact, I think they even incorporated how she dies in with the marketing, uh, not only by spoiling it in the trailer, oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but also right. applying it to Morph. Like, I know there's promotional imagery out there of Jake Gyllenhaal as Morph and the paints running up his neck the same, in the same way it it gets uh, Josephina. 
But then you cut it to later on when you've got that haunting moment where Josephina looks like she's trying to get out of the graffiti. And as creepy as it is, and as mu- as long as it lingers, it doesn't look that great, I gotta say. It looks a little photoshopped, but... Eh. There's another, actually, and again, uh, gosh, you look up, the internet is like, has the criticisms for everything. Um, <laughs> I was reading on the internet, somebody suggesting that um, with Josephina during her death, uh, she doesn't really like uh, move or like, you know, she's just standing still, sticking her arms out. But somebody noted that, oh, Josephina probably didn't move too much because it would have cost more to do the CGI or like, you know, take longer, be more labor intensive to like, make the cgi crawling up her skin as she's mm-hmm. like moving walking around and that well you know i that's <laughs> that's probably how it works i guess but um yeah there's like something left to be desired there in like um that and i, I totally forgot about the the monk the monkey hands uh and how they looked and i think that's a case too where like uh just make it dark and like that'll mask a lot of the cgi problems um yeah then, you know makes sense that hobo man was very <laughs> was a little man um and sphere there's not you know I'm not trying to knock sphere at all i thought sphere was cool the sphere death but uh not a lot of cgi necessarily involved there but um yeah and, and the same thing with uh don don so but yeah again i thought the strength was the cgi the um the faces churning the hands coming out of posters um strangely hit and miss now before i get to the last pivotal question uh with regards to this film i guess overall i I know you kind of hinted at it in the beginning of the discussion but i don't know what would be sort of your your overall opinion on the film it it sounded like you enjoyed it overall and had a good time but i'm curious if there was anything else that either stood out to you or anything that maybe detracted from the movie for you or, or anything anything else that you haven't mentioned previously yeah and uh, i don't know if we're gonna me and you are gonna establish a, a two thumbs up or like a five <laughs> stars or out of ten but like you know i would put this i think this film was like above average i think uh what's preventing me from calling and it was entertaining sure i think you know it, it's funny that people criticize a movie uh when this movie is about art critique so in that yeah. sense it is i guess ironic but um, I think my biggest hangup for me in this movie was really just that it seems like it wasn't sure if it was like a black dark or a black comedy or a horror film. And I just feel like, um, I, again, just like there's like missing moments, like stuff on the cutting room floor that made me think um, there was like a few more scenes that could have made this like much more comprehensive horror film or a much more comprehensive black comedy. Uh, so for me, it was really the uncertain vibe, I guess, of the movie that didn't click for me. But otherwise, I thought it was fun. Um, you know, we discussed the performances, and I think Hall really does a lot here. Rene Russo really does a lot in a more subdued performance. So uh, great acting, some fun visuals, um, and I I like this. You know, I guess the the, the scale I like to use at home is like the out of 10. And I think this is like definitely like a, a, a six, seven. But again, I'm fresh off 24 hours of watching it and it's still in my head, but I, I liked it. I, I would have to give it the same grade. I don't know. There was something 
magnetizing about it. And I, I obviously at that time I'm thinking, well, you know, it's it's touching on stuff that kind of interests me. I like going to art museums, yada yada yada. But I think it was it was at a point in my life where messaging in films I, I don't know it, it either needed to be something nondescript or it needed to be something that was a little bit more subversive in a way that I wouldn't get the first go around and it, it's weird to say it because I I, I do think Nightcrawler I, I have to agree with all the critics and that Nightcrawler is definitely a superior film mm-hmm. I've probably seen this movie more than I've seen Nightcrawler um and and maybe i don't know maybe that also says something you know it goes back to i think i've said it before on the show about you know seeing joker like it's joker's a tremendous film and it's a film i i do love it's a film that i do think is very important and also just a good dc film it's not something i'm going to be watching every night and you know at one point in time nightcrawler rubbed me the wrong way because I knew some how, how should I describe this you and I both knew somebody that was very reminiscent of Lou Bloom um so 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 for a while that movie was kind of persona non grata in my in my book and then I came back to it and realized there was a lot more to it that had there was a lot more to say other than give me bad flashbacks uh if anything, it's the kind of satirical film that I don't think we get enough of. And yeah, there's the masturbatory element of, well, it's set in L.A. And you put it beautifully, like it's the idea of anybody, you know, film reviewers critiquing this. And yet the film is about art criticism in a way like I, I kind of take that as part of the point of the film is, you know, you you need sometimes you need that kind of a mirror Again, going to the DNA DNA of this podcast, you do need a mirror that reflects back on any facet of society, and the same applies to Los Angeles. And I think this is a perfect way. And it doesn't even need to be isolated to L.A. It could extend to the pretentious art world of New York. It could apply literally anywhere. In all of its ham-fistedness, in all of its bad CGI every now and then, and I will say, out of all the performances, Gyllenhaal's the one that really, he really gives it his all in a way that I think, hey man, you're not playing Lou Bloom, let it shine, you know, yeah. I, I don't know. But the final question I have for you, who is this movie for? Who is the audience for this film? It's a great question because uh, I feel like there's several, well, obviously there's several answers that could really, you know, fit here, but. Uh, I think really this movie is geared towards um, I think this movie is geared towards the the non-art critics. I guess the very this movie is definitely not like inaccessible. I think calling it, you know, accessible, you know, makes I think puts it down to the level of like a a Marvel or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, I, I feel like it's kind of. It, it reminds me of Nightcrawler in that it really appeals to, um, you know, I guess the commoner who is uh, is aware of these worlds and is uh, well aware enough of them to know that they're bullshit. I think, you know, watching Nightcrawler, obviously, as journalists, you feel a certain way about it. But yes. when it came out, you know, I was, you know, we're still chugging along at the sundial and 
uh, you know, you haven't like lived through it necessarily in a professional setting level like that. So I think, you know, watching Nightcrawler, it's kind of like um, one of these movies where I, I, I think the, I think the audience is just kind of um, people who don't, don't like this world. It's not for art people. Definitely not. I think um, as you can see in the film reviews, it's definitely not for people who are serious about art. Things about people who know that it's pretentious and bullshit and uh, are, enjoy the comeuppance that these art critics have. So I guess for lack of a better term, it's just for, uh, I guess, your average typical pop culture, uh, you, somebody knowledgeable enough about pop culture, because I know there are obviously you know, people who are just going to not be familiar with how snooty and pretentious the art world is. So there is a little bit of a, you know, something to grasp there but i can't just i can't describe it you tell me i i I think i know where you're where you're getting at with people that are inundated by culture and i i I would extend that further to people that are and again maybe this also says too much about me but like i'm trying to not do that but maybe it's reaching out to people that know a good deal about just the oddity of culture in today's world and sort of where we stand in terms of the arts and this extends to what you could see in a gallery what you can hear on spotify or what you watch on streaming um but i also feel as though maybe it's for the audience of people out there who they are so over inundated by hand down your throat oh look at this marvel movie look at this nft look at this what have you. And this is kind of a, a, in some ways you could look at this as almost like an anti-capitalism message. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm really reaching now, but no, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, yeah. Like maybe, maybe it's for the people out there that are like, what if all these people finally got their comeuppance and which, Hey, I, I get that. I, I, there's a lot of that, that where I, I do overlap with people given that that's something we've talked about at length on this show is like the whole idea of culture and, and, you know, monopolies and what have you, like it's, it's a lot of stuff that is exhausting and this kind of gives an opportunity for, you know, two hours of fun watching some of these people that move a certain world that affects a certain facet of our culture art and seeing these people get their, just desserts for thinking they could make a quick buck off of artwork that, you know, I was going to ask you this too. Like, what did you think of Betchel Deese's art? Because to me, <laughs> it's like, some, like, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of it that's pretty dark and pretty disturbing. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say it's outsider art. I mean, it's certainly nothing equivalent to the, um, the, uh, I'm blanking on the artist's name, but the the shark in formaldehyde, it's a far cry from that. I think his name was, da- I think that's Damien Hurst, but like, I, it's, it's all right, you know, for a movie, it's I, okay. Uh, I don't know, what'd you think of Deese's art? <laughs> yeah, the same, like, again, an art critic might say like, oh, it's particularly spooky, particularly good or bad. Um, I didn't view it any certain way. I mean, I think, um, you know obviously it's not going to be like 
uh, the scream, the the gasping figure, or anything to that level mm. of, of absurdity. I think I actually think they didn't show it enough for the audience to really get mesmerized by it because when they did show like certain like people getting drawn into it, um, nothing was really too remarkable. I mean, I have to honestly say a lot of it seemed like stuff that I would like see in a museum and kind of shrug my shoulders and move along and. Um, I and that wasn't really like a detractor for me in the movie at all. Like I didn't, I did not think like uh, these these sucks. Like, <laughs> like I I wouldn't even like pay to see it. But like I I knew it was kind of the spiel where like art people would really be enthralled by it versus us. But um, yeah, nothing really seemed too dark. Like the revelation that the artwork it had blood in it uh, wasn't so scary so much as it was just like well you know. Kind of figured that something was supernatural, and it wasn't a letdown to hear that. It was more so like a, uh, I guess I was expecting it, but saying that that's a detraction is not really the appropriate thing to say. So, um, yeah, I really can't say much on his art. Uh, unremarkable to me, but I get it. And I, I think too, just to add one last, one last element to who this movie may be for. At maybe, and it's ironic because whatever i can't say it's something that i particularly am obsessed with but it's certainly something i'm very i've been yeah it's something i've been infatuated with ever since i first went to the broad which funny enough was of course for the sundial um when it opened but maybe if anything this movie is supposed to be a critique on i don't know i guess postmodern slash modern slash outsider art and question whether or not that it's something that's worth making a quick buck off of um because again I, there is some of that artwork that i do find intriguing and interesting there, there's some of the artwork at the broad that's stunning even some of it that feels very commercial and pop arty there is an appeal with some of it but then there's also some of it where you're like it's just michael jackson with a monkey <laughs> all in yellow you know it's yeah so it you know i if it's somebody again, and th- this may be again why this movie may very well be for Sebastian. If if it's the kind of movie showing the comeuppance of people that are going to make a buck off of, here's a red triangle on a wall. <laughs> yeah. All right, I'll watch two hours of somebody getting their comeuppance because they made a a, a good quid off of a red triangle on wall. So, but yeah. I think. I think that sums up all of our thoughts on Velvet Buzzsaw. We could probably go on for another hour, but I I think, once again, listeners, just watch the movie. Just sit back, relax, and give it a good watch. Um, Before we do go, and it didn't seem appropriate at the time to bring it up just because of the seriousness of the topic of the L.A. riots, but I should mention a very belated happy 30th birthday to our podcast brother and sundial brother pete d camarillo happy birthday good sir i yes. should have something going your way very soon yeah happy birthday pete if you've made it this far if you watch the movie go watch it now and then come back and yeah happy birthday man and um with that listeners tune in next week for the next episode of hobo man mindset You've been listening to Mars on Life. 
Look up our show on Instagram and Twitter by searching at Mars on Life Show and give us a follow. Tune in to the latest episodes and bonus content from our show wherever podcasts are found, including Anchor, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Also, don't forget to head on over to the official Mars on Life YouTube channel to like and subscribe our work. This show's artwork, Happy Mars, is by Zachary Urberich, while our intro and outro is Space Explorers by Kevin McLeod. If you keep going, you'll make it to Mars. Mars.